Hello and welcome. I'm David Muir, political director of Daily Coast. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency, from Senate to city council. Please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. David Beard is off this week, but I'm joined once again today by our frequent guest host, Joe Sudbay, and we have a lot to cover. There is a major retirement in New Hampshire, the goings-on in Alabama regarding the state's congressional map, recall attempts by disgruntled Michigan conservatives, and a special election in Wisconsin that once again saw Democrats outperform the top of the ticket. Then we are going to be talking with Carlos Odio, the co-founder of Equis Labs, a nonprofit devoted to increasing Latino electoral engagement. He is going to be sharing the results of a big post-mortem his outfit did on the 2022 elections, and also tell us about what Democrats should be doing to reach out to Latino voters for 2024. It's an excellent episode, so let's get rolling. Well, I always miss David Beard when he is on vacation, but Joe Sudbay, I love having you in the guest host chair. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you, David. And I love being in this guest host chair, much as I love it when I'm guest hosting on SiriusXM Progress and you join me. It's always the most fun uh, interviews when we when we get to spend some time <laughs> talking about what's going on. And we're going to do that today. We sure are uh, glad to return the favor. So right before we started recording this episode on Wednesday afternoon, we got some big news out of New Hampshire. We have to start there, Joe. Yes. Uh, the governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, Republican, he's been in office. He first won in 2016, announced this week that he's not running for re-election. It would be his fifth term because New Hampshire elects a governor every two years every two years. The only other state that does that is Vermont. But this makes New Hampshire really a great pickup opportunity for Democrats. It is, uh, you know, it's a very competitive state. The Democratic Party in the state is extremely well organized. They know exactly how many votes they have to get. Sununu has been a tough competitor. He's a legacy. His father was the governor at one point as well. Um, and he's been popular because he's kind of been a New Hampshire Republican in that he's pretty pragmatic. You know, he doesn't, hasn't been a true Trumpian MAGA Republican. And it looked like there was some chatter that he might run for president this year. There was also some chatter, you know, that he may run for Senate. We've heard that for a long time, too, off and on over the years. His future has been speculated upon just about more than any other politician in New England. And now he's um, now he's retiring. Now, he's only 48 years old, David, which I thought, I mean, he feels like he's been around forever. What have I forever. done with my life? <laughs> right. um, but there are already some Democrats who've announced that they're going to get in the race. Manchester, which is the largest city in the state. Their mayor, Joyce Craig, is running. And also Cindy Warmington, who serves on the state's executive council. That's a really unique five-member body that has veto power over government contracts and nominations to state posts. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's kind of an, odd thing. It's like New Hampshire is the only place that has it, but it does give um, her a big platform to run from. Uh, we're already starting to see Republicans get in the race. Uh, set, former Senate President Chuck Morris is getting in. He announced already. You remember him? He was in the primary last year for Senate, and uh, he was the favorite candidate of Mitch McConnell, and then he lost to Don Boldick, who was an extreme MAGA a Republican, and Boldick then went on to lose to Maggie Hassan by a wide margin. Former Senator Kelly Ayotte is going to get in the race too. She lost a race for Senate in 2016. So it's going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be a long primary because New Hampshire, their primary, first in the state for presidential, pretty much last in the state for gubernatorial. It won't be until September of 2024. You know, there's always a good chance that some Looney Tune will win. It is oh, yeah. New Hampshire. <laughs> and, but uh, yeah, it's presidential year. And I think that bodes well for Democrats. I agree. You know, Joe Biden won New Hampshire by seven points last time. And New Hampshire is an unusual state. The electorate does tend to be 
uncommonly swingy compared to other states. But I'm not seeing a good reason why Biden wouldn't turn in a similar performance. And if he does, that's automatically a huge headwind for the GOP, even if they don't nominate someone who's totally fucking Looney Tunes like Don Bolduck, which I mean, I don't know, 50-50 chance at least that they do that. Um, and, you know, when Sununu won in 2016, he only won by a couple points and Clinton only carried New Hampshire by like less than half a point. So, you know, the environment obviously just was kind of sucky in 2016. And there's no real reason to think that we'll be looking at that same kind of environment in, in 2024. Yeah, I agree. Um, I went to college in New Hampshire. It is a quirky state, but <laughs> it is. Uh, it, but I, I agree. And I think um, it should be a, a good year for Biden at the top of the ticket. Um, you know, Trump has never won New Hampshire. And I don't think he'll win it this time, assuming he's the nominee. The other thing is, David, as you know, what are there, 400 members of the New Hampshire House? It's pretty much even right now, give or take on a given day. Um, and, uh, you know, I just feel like 2024 could be the year that Democrats retake the State House in Concord. Um, and we got to keep an eye on it. It's going to be very competitive. Absolutely. So another story that is actually still unfolding as we're recording the down ballot this week is what's going on in the Alabama legislature. So we have talked about this case a lot on this show. Our listeners know that the Alabama legislature has to pass a new congressional map because a federal court ruled that the current map violates the Voting Rights Act because it discriminates against black voters. And the Supreme Court shockingly, rather famously at this point, upheld that ruling quite recently. And the court set a deadline of Friday for lawmakers to come up with a new map. And literally at this minute, lawmakers on Wednesday afternoon were convening to debate various maps. But all of the maps that Republicans have actually been considering and voting on fail to do the one thing, the one thing the court told them to do. And that was to create a second congressional district where black voters would be able to elect their preferred candidate. And now we know that black voters in Alabama almost certainly prefer black Democrats. And the other thing that we know is that white voters in Alabama almost always vote Republican. So the court in a very lengthy and learned and detailed opinion was aware of all of this in just really, truly extraordinary detail. And it said that any replacement map, because of Alabama's history of this racially polarized voting, should have two districts where the black voting age population is either a majority or, quote, something close to it. The GOP maps definitely do not have anything close to a black majority. One plan had just a 42% black population. The other was just 38%. Both of those districts would have voted for Trump. There's almost no way that they would ever send a black Democrat to Congress. What's going to happen here, assuming that the legislature actually doesn't have a last minute change of heart and pass a legitimate plan by Friday, is that the court is then going to scrutinize whatever map that Republicans do wind up producing, and they're going to see whether they think it complies with the Voting Rights Act. And if they disagree, and I really think that they will disagree with Republicans here, they're almost certainly going to draw their own map. They're going to have some outside experts come in and create a map that passes muster. In fact, they already have some experts ready to go. Now, what Republicans are doing here who the hell knows? There are various theories explaining this weird foot dragging that they're engaged in. It honestly may be that they are just a bunch of ding-dongs, Joe, who think that they can fool the court, but this court is just not going to get fooled. And at the end of the day, I'm almost certain that we will see a legitimate bona fide map where African-American voters make up a majority in two districts and are able to send two black Democrats to Congress next year. Yeah, David, I have to say, watching this play out, I mean, it's not surprising that Republicans in Alabama are doing this, but it is still like just 
shocking. And you know, remember when we all first started writing on the uh, uh, on the in the blogosphere, and there was this phrase: "It's okay if you're a Republican. It's okay if you're a Republican to ignore the Supreme Court." I mean, you know, they were just giving you a suggestion about what to do. Oh my God! Look. 42% is not a majority. 38% is not a majority. No matter how you get the fuzzy math, it's not. And I think that the, I agree. I think the court's going to step in and impose a map that should be reflective of the population and do what the Voting Rights Act. Look, the Milligan decision that from the Supreme Court was a shocker to all of us, yep. but you know, and I'm sure it was just as shocking to Republicans in the state, but, <laughs> you know, but still, I mean, the Supreme Court actually meant it, and I think the district court and the panel will, it, it, you know, make sure that that, that 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 edict is carried out. Yeah, there is absolutely something to the modern Republican Party. There's something about them that says they think that only they are the legitimate governing entity in this country. And whenever anyone contradicts them in some way, shape, or form, they essentially rejected out of hand as illegitimate. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing in Michigan, which I know you want to talk about. This is a state, of course, that we have discussed on this show a ton this year, where Democrats very famously in a huge upset won back both chambers of the legislature in the 2022 midterms, giving them their first complete trifecta, their first total control over state government since 1983, and now Republicans are trying to undo that in what really feels like an anti-democratic way. Oh, absolutely, David. And, uh, you know, it, first of all, let's just recall that the reason Democrats were able to take control in 2022 is because the voters of the state in 2018 said, we're sick of gerrymandering and we're sick of these voting restrictions. And they actually had four fair maps and the Democrats competed and they won the House and the Senate, as you said. And because they have the trifecta, they have been passing terrific legislation on so many issues, on labor issues, on gun issues, on LGBTQ issues, on abortion issues, on economic issues. The Democrats are showing what can be done and putting the people of their state first. What a concept, right? What a concept. Two of the bills they've passed, or they've passed a, in the House, they passed a hate crimes bill that added sexual orientation and gender identity to the law. And they also passed a red flag law, you know, in, in terms of guns, so that you can take guns away from people who may pose a threat to themselves or others. These are both very standard kind of bills and legislation that have passed in other states around the country, um, in other sane states, I should say. But of course, that has wreaked up backlash. Part of the backlash started because Fox News, you know, spread lies about the fact that this, about the hate crimes law. So now there are five targets for a recall. All women, representatives Jenner, Jennifer Conlon of Ann Arbor, Betsy Coffia of Tra Traverse City, Sh Sharon McDonald of Troy, Reggie Miller of Van Buren Township, and Jamie Churches of Wyandotte. And they want to go after them because the, these all these women won competitive races, they voters chose them, but now because they are doing what they promised to do, that can't they can't have it. So there's a whole effort underway to recall them. But what's important, David, and it's something you pointed out uh, uh, at Daily Coast was the ability to recall is based on getting a percentage of the vote in last year's election for governor in each district. And that's a pretty high number because there was really good turnout last year in Michigan, um, re-electing Governor Whitmer. So that's a that's a hurdle for them. Another hurdle is even though this this group of right-wing conservatives isn't necessarily associated with the party, you know, they're all kind of intertwined in their own ways. And the Michigan Republican State Party is just about broke. Um, they've all been fighting amongst each other, which has generated a lot of in-state and national headlines, like literal fights. I'm not just saying like arguing. They've been arguing, but there have also been fights. Oh, but yeah. the they, they had a fist fight break out at <laughs> yes. a party meeting. Some guy said he got kneed in the groin, something like yeah. that. I mean, just, just really 
Yeah. So imagine that they're too busy fighting to raise money. They only got about $93,000 in the bank, according to the Detroit News. Um, the current party leader is Christina Carmo. She's an election denier who ran for Secretary of State, lost badly to Jocelyn Benson. It was like a 56-42 margin. I don't think she's conceded yet, but that's kind of the gang we're up against in Michigan. And hopefully this um, recall election will go nowhere, but it just shows you what we're up against in a state where we're even states where Democrats are in control and we're making progress. Yeah. And, you know, the Republican Party doesn't seem to have said anything about the recalls. It's almost like they know that they're not likely to succeed. The state Democratic Party as you know, up and down the line, oh, we're going to fight these, we're going to protect these members. And, you know, Joe, to talk about the signatures for a second that you mentioned that the these activists would need to get on the ballot. So you need 25% of the vote in the district from the last gubernatorial election, signatures equal to that number. And the numbers will vary from district to district, but that's probably about 11,000 signatures in a single state house district. There are 100 districts in Michigan, and that is actually a ton. It's a huge, huge number. Uh, you know, it, it, if they were trying to recall Gretchen Whitmer, the governor, Republicans would need more than a million signatures. So, and, and you, you could never get a million signatures for, for something in Michigan. Now, I, I, I don't know where they're going to get the money. I don't know where they're going to get the enthusiasm. But, you know, Democrats do have to be on guard because I mentioned at the outset that uh, Democrats last had the trifecta in 1983. What happened then was that Republicans actually succeeded in recalling two Democratic state senators and then held the Senate for 40 years until last year. So I'm sure everyone is going to take this seriously, even if Republicans are clowns. Um, but uh, yeah, they're clowns. And uh, I, I, I think we're going to watch them stumble over their feet. I hope so. And I, and I will say, David, it's something you and I have talked about. I do feel like uh, Democrats, particularly at the state level, but even at the national level, have a much better understanding of the import of state legislative races, and we can take nothing for granted. And that's what we're seeing. And I, I'm sure that's what we'll see in Michigan this year. I hope so anyways. Yeah. I mean, there have been so many rapturous articles about the Michigan legislature and the Minnesota legislature who've just been, you know, both of them won by Democrats last year. Democrats have been passing awesome stuff left and right. You know, you talked about the red flag bill and the anti-hate uh, crime bill in in Michigan. You know, uh, we 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 should mention one thing about that. You talked about the the lies that Fox News was spreading about that bill. Fox News fucking said that the anti-hate crime bill could make it a felony to use the wrong pronoun. I mean, this is the bullshit we're up against. It's absolutely. And look, let's just say the anti-LGBTQ forces have been on a roll in states around the country. And Michigan, Minnesota, Maine, California, Colorado, other states, other progressive states have blocked it. And it's driving the right crazy because they really do want to inflict this this um, horrific agenda around the country. So uh, the, that's why these states where progress is made are so vitally important. And we have to keep it up and expand those numbers. So one last item, Joe, you remember that special election for the Wisconsin State Senate that took place the same time as the huge election for the Wisconsin Supreme Court earlier this spring? I do. I absolutely remember it. I actually spoke to the Democratic candidate on State of the States on um, Sirius XM Progress. Yeah, Jody Habish Sinekin. She ran yes. a great race. This was a traditionally Republican district, and she lost by just a very close margin. Um, but the guy who beat her was a Republican member of the state assembly, Dan Knodel. And so he had to give up his seat in the lower chamber. So there was just a special election on Tuesday for that district. And that district was even more Republican leaning than the state Senate district from back in the spring. In fact, Trump won it by about 16 points. Now, Republicans won that special election on Tuesday night, but the Republican candidate only beat the Democrat by around seven points. So that means that the Democrat, Bob Tatterson, actually ran ahead of the top of the ticket by nine points. 
That is a big overperformance. Now, this district is actually nested inside of that state Senate district, but it's even more Republican than the Senate district. And it's in the northern Milwaukee suburbs. This is a traditionally conservative area that really has been trending toward the left ever since Trump. But that's by no means the only problem for Republicans. You know, at Daily Coast Elections, we catalog these special elections very, very carefully. And so far this year, we have 20 in our database. And Democrats in those special elections, in aggregate, are running seven points ahead of Joe Biden in 2020. That is a big overperformance. And as we've noted before, performance in special elections taken together tends to be pretty predictive of what happens in the next general election. And so if Democrats are still around seven points ahead of Biden's mark, and remember that Biden won the national popular vote by more than four points, that is another huge warning sign for Republicans. And it's also just amazing that this is happening while a Democrat is in the White House. You know, we saw this in 2017, 2018, when Trump was in the White House, but Biden's in the White House. That's not supposed to be happening. That's right. That's right. These numbers and the work you and your colleagues at Daily Coast Elections are doing to track this is critically important. And, you know, David, we hear a lot of prognosticators and pundits making predictions. And, you know, you see articles about what the year is going to be like. I like to look at actual numbers and results of things that actually happened. And this is, to me, one of the clearest indicators. And I thought it was the case back in 2022, as well as the entire, you know, punditry was still predicting a red wave. I remember Axios had a red tsunami watch uh, headline in late October of 2022. But you had been seeing pretty good numbers in special elections, including the uh, special election for the House seat in New York, New York 19 in August that no one expected, no one quote unquote. So yeah, I think this is a really good indicator. Um, You know, we're still a a ways out, but uh, I'd much rather be looking at us seeing Democrats running seven points ahead of where Biden was in 2020. That's just about anything else right now. Yeah. And, you know, things could change because prior to that last batch of special elections late in the cycle in 2022, the numbers weren't looking good for Democrats. But obviously, we know what changed. Something enormous changed. And that was Dobbs. The thing right. about 23-24 is the things that are changing are only getting worse for Republicans. I mean, climate change is unbelievably salient right now. Inflation keeps dropping. The stock market, for whoever actually cares about that, is going up. Voters' views of the economy seem to be going up despite the traditional media's best attempts to fearmonger about it. So something kind of has to change for Republicans, and it's really hard to see what that could be. Yeah, especially on a national level when the only thing they seem to be focused on is Hunter Biden. So, uh, you know, I don't don't know if that's a big rallying cry for your average voter when, like you said, all these other factors are mattering. Look, the entire country is impacted by climate change this year. The smoke in major cities, the heat in the South. I mean, we have hurricane season. I thought it was really um, very brave of Governor DeSantis, whose state is losing insurers, to say, knock on wood, nothing bad happens with hurricanes this year. I mean, if that's your strategy, <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that's going to have to do it for our weekly hits. Coming up, we are talking with Carlos Odio, the co-founder of Equis Labs, about Latino voters and how Democrats can best reach them. Stay with us after the break. Joining us on the down ballot this week is Carlos Odio. Carlos is the co-founder of Equis Labs, a nonprofit devoted to increasing Latino electoral engagement and building long-term political power. Carlos, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on, guys. So tell us about the history of Equis and how you helped launch it. Sure. Um, So uh, my co-founder, Stephanie Valensky, and I, we both worked on the 2008 presidential campaign together on the Latino vote specifically. And as you can imagine, there were lots of conversations we had at that point about gaps that we felt still existed when it came to engaging Latino voters. 
Um, we went off and did a number of things. We both worked in the administration her for a lot longer um, than I did. Um, I worked at an organizing institute. I worked at, uh, I, I ran a donor table, a donor collaborative um, in Florida for multiple years. She worked in tech. She also worked as a donor advisor. And we came together 10 years later and said, so many of these gaps that existed 10 years ago still exist now. This was 2018, early 2019. Um, and we said, this might be the moment we need to um, come together, take all this expertise, all these relationships and leverage them to address what are these gaps and the understanding and engaging engagement of um, Latino voters. And so um, and so we started Equis and it started with the research. The idea was um, if we could get deeper research, so much understanding of Latinos was based on a single snapshot, a single poll that was done um, in the, over the course of a cycle or collecting small numbers of interviews from a number of public polls. And that's how you under, had gathered your understanding, right? Um, even when we got a new generation of, uh, of great pollsters like Matt Barreto, people were going to them once saying, we checked the box and then moving on and that was it. So we said, what we need to do is we need to work with Matt and with others who have expertise in this area and say, let's get uh, enough sample size in given states that we can really get deeper, understand the differences, the real cleavages in the community and over time, so we could separate the signal from the noise um, and understand what was uh, meaningful action. And what we realized quickly is also, you just, people didn't just want numbers, okay? Uh, Mark Kelly's at 63% with Latinos in Arizona. They wanted to know, what does that mean? What's the context? Like, what's the story here? Where is this going? Um, and so we built out more internal capacity to be able to do that. You know, at the end of the day, we've now built out from research. We have other programs around media and democracy, um, lots more experiments that we do. But at the end of the day, it's all about, you know, Latinos, if they are invisible in the data, are going to be invisible to campaigns. So how do we make them visible? Um, and even if you don't come at this from the Latino side, if you want an understanding of the American electorate, then you need to understand its most dynamic elements. It's really been such a great addition to the, the political landscape, in my opinion, Carlos. But before we dive in too much more, you mentioned Latino vote. We often hear that term. And we, every couple of years, we hear it from people who try to explain it to us who haven't done the level and depth of research that you have. And it's really, it's not a monolith. So just give us a broad overview of the Latino electric in the United States. So we can look at this a few different ways. There is the, the, the simple one, if anything is simple, that is country of origin or place of origin, right? Um, so, you know, nationally eligible Latino voters, you know, six and 10 are Mexican-American, right? So majority is Mexican-American. Um, in most of the battleground states you're going to go to, you're going to have heavy majorities being Mexican-American. From there, you know, you get about 10% that are Puerto Rican, 5% or less who are Cuban. And then you have between, you know, let's say six and 8% who are Central American or some other, some other mix. And that's at a national level. Once you get down at a state level, Florida is a big difference. Florida is about 30% Cuban, about 30% Puerto Rican. Um, and then the other 40% is a mix of 18 different national origin groups, right? That's very different from the national picture, even though you increasingly have pockets of Puerto Rican, Cuban, Venezuelan voters um, in other centers, especially urban um, especially urban centers. But that's just one element. I mean, you're, you're also looking at the difference between on one end of the spectrum, people who are immigrants, people who are more recently arrived, or their children. To the other end, people who like many New Mexican Hispanics would say, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. And they are still Hispanic, they still identify that way, but their experience is not one of being immigrants. You have differences between urban and rural, but any way you want to kind of cut it, and you have generations in multiple perspectives, there's still, we like to say Latino is not a monolith, obviously not a monolith, um, but we've recently had to add the clause, but still a group. There is still something common to people who identify as Hispanic. And so you can take someone whose day-to-day -day experience actually seems fairly far removed from a Latino experience. They don't live in a particular Latino area. Um, maybe they don't speak Spanish. And yet if they identify as being of Latino origin, they are still different enough from their neighbors. It is still coloring their experience of American politics enough to study them as Latino. Really interesting. So um, Equis released its uh, 2022 postmortem last month, and it was titled Latino Voters in the Case of the Missing Red Wave. Give us a summary of some of the key conclusions you and your colleagues reached. Sure. So, uh, you know, starting election night, we were kind of deep in on, on precinct data. Um, you know, we 
started looking at all the polling we had done pre-election. Eventually, we matched that to the voter file so we could see what uh, the people who voted, we go back and see what they had told us before the election. We did a post-mortem um, battleground survey as soon after the election as we could so we could get fresh insights from uh, what people told us they had done um, in the election. And we looked, gathered all the data we could. And as you all will recall, leading into the midterms, there was a lot of uncertainty about where Latino voters would end up. You know, you had had a big shift from 2016 to 2020, big shift in the context of a very hyper-polarized American electorate where you don't see big shifts, where, you know, if three in 10 Latinos had supported Trump in 2016, it was closer to four in 10 in 2020. And so the question is, well, is that part of a trend? Will that continue? Will it rebound? Will it stay the same? Um, and there were uh, all the reasons in the broader electorate, there were questions of uncertainty, you know, first midterm of new Democratic president, kind of tough economic fundamentals, tough Biden approvals. It's a question of, okay, was this the beginning of a larger realignment um, among Latino voters? And um, at the end of the day, what you ended up seeing was essentially stability from 2020. Um, you had uh, the Catalyst crew on, I think, a few weeks ago, Michael Frias and Hillary Anderson. Their report showed this very compellingly that in the hotly contested battleground states, um, Latino support for Democrats was about what it had been in 2020. You did not see further decline. Now, you didn't see a rebound to pre-2020 levels. You didn't see rebounds to 16 or 18 levels. Um, but you saw that essentially Republicans had not made additional gains beyond what Trump had gotten in 2020. The one exception being Florida, um, where you did have the latest in a series of kind of precipitous declines in, um, in Democratic support. And so what we did in the report was try to explain specifically that stability. What are the elements that led to um, a, a essentially a stay in, uh, in support levels for Democrats and what was then different in Florida? So, yeah, Carlos, let's drill down uh, into Florida because... Obviously, on what was otherwise a shockingly good night for Democrats, Florida was the big black mark in 2022. And of course, everyone would love to find some silver bullet or some perfect plan to turn things around there. At the same time, you know, was 2022 just a huge outlier with DeSantis winning by 20 in a state that had normally been pretty swingy? What do you think has gone wrong for Democrats there and what can they do to turn it around? Great question. And, um, you know, my, my, my home state of uh, Florida, and I'm, I'm talking to you from um, Miami right now, you really can't study in a vacuum. You can't just say, well, Florida's weird and we're just going to totally write it off. Um, and at the same time, I wish we could, but <laughs> sorry, no offense to your home state. <laughs> but well, at the same time, I mean, it's important to understand what is unique and what's not, um, whether you care about Florida as I think people actually should care about Florida, or whether what you care about is what's happening elsewhere, um, it's helpful to understand what is replicable and what is not. And there are elements that I think are very specific to the Florida experience, but there are other pieces that are not necessarily. And I, again, can't look at it in a vacuum compared to other states, but you also can't look at it in the vacuum of just looking at cycle-specific factors and not going a little bit more back in time, right? Because we are talking about what has been uh, another step down in Democratic support among Hispanics in the state. You know, 2016 was a high mark for Democrats. Hillary Clinton gets, you know, high 60s likely among, uh, among Latino voters. Two years later in 2018, that is in the high 50s. Um, in 2020, that's in the low 50s. Um, Calo support had at 51%, other exits, you know, 53, 54, what have you, but you're in the low 50s, more or less, to 2022, where you're now, Democrats are in the 40s, right? So Democrats are um, losing the Hispanic vote in Florida for the first time in 15 years. So it's a return to pre-Obama levels. Um, and so you have to look at 2016 um, and what is it that was holding so many voters back from Donald Trump? And then what is it that allowed them to kind of move over? And you have the, the thing I think people don't put enough credit actually on the Trump side, which is that Trump actually ran a very aggressive campaign for the Latino vote. It was the most aggressive outreach to Latino voters in the modern era, more even so than George W. Bush in 2004, if only because Trump had social media to avail himself of. Um, and essentially, Trump or his surrogates were camped out in Miami for four years um, in a way that was very one-sided. Democrats were not competing in the same manner. Right? So you can look at factors... And you can look at different segments of the vote that start moving. First, it's Cubans who had been hesitant um, to support Trump who come around to him. Then you have other tranches of Cuban voters, more recently arrived Cubans, who in many ways looked like other immigrant Latinos, where one of the more progressive elements in the Cuban vote had been the most Obama supporting in 2012. 
and that over a process of being courted and a kind of perfect storm come over to uh, the Republican side and become one of the most pro-Trump elements. You then get breaking into the Colombian vote and the Venezuelan vote and other more recently arrived diasporic communities where you then see this much bigger swing. And coming into the 2022 cycle, there was such strength for Republicans in the state of Florida that you have a little bit of a chicken and egg problem when you look at spending and investment in 2022, which is Democrats really looked at the state and made a calculation um, that it wasn't worth the price tag, given that you had what seemed like two strong incumbents. And so just Democrats move their money elsewhere and you get kind of the last piece, the last mile problem here where Democratic support collapses altogether uh, across the electorate, but with a special resonance among Latino voters. So to your question, David, what if this is temporary? There are some of that that seems specific to the cycle, specific to DeSantis, specific to what he did during COVID and dynamics that were unleashed during COVID. So the fact that there really was kind of an asymmetrical advantage for Republicans. And there are other parts that are deeper, that really are a, a greater realignment where, there, where Republicans are telling a culturally and emotionally resonant alternative narrative from what Democrats were um, and creating a different identity for certain diasporic communities in uh, in Florida and who are now true Republicans have become hardcore and have uh, have uh, bought it. That said, Florida is very volatile. And so you can never assume that what just happened is what's going to happen in the next election. Um, it's all over the map. And I think for both parties, that is presents both hope and opportunity um, and some danger that Florida is never going to stay what it just was. That's for sure. So what is the hope and opportunity for Florida Democrats then? What would your prescription be for? What ails them? Well, I think there's uh, there's probably always some hope in starting anew and getting back to basics. I think if you go back to the Obama elections, there was a great deal of optimism among Democrats of what that might bring that had ushered in a new age. Um, again, maybe taking for granted that some of uh, the recent trends we're going to hold over a longer period of time. In Florida, though, you know, you point to elections like 2014, first Rick Scott, I'm sorry, the Rick Scott reelect, um, 2018, where uh, Rick Scott barely wins that Senate race, um, where Ron DeSantis uh, ekes out gubernatorial race. Th those margins were so close that you could point to innumerable factors that would have produced a different outcome. And yeah, some of the more some of the fundamentals seem a little bit harder for Democrats um, in terms of more recent arrivals into the state. You have a lot more conservative retirees. Has that fundamentally changed the state? I think it's actually a little bit early to say. And so for Democrats, I think you have the win that they just pulled off in Jacksonville. Oh yeah, um, that in the mayor's race, which I think may have been kind of the first signs of uh, pushback to DeSantis Republican overreach in the state. Um, you have some other local markers like uh, the county mayor's race in Miami-Dade County that's coming up this next year. Um, and the ability for them to build at a more local level. I think part of what has been ailing them is that there was a divide, frankly, between Democratic leadership and the voters we're talking about, swing Latino voters in the state of Florida. Some of that divide is cultural, symbolic, some of it's physical. Some of it's about having bodies in the places where these voters live. You know, Hialeah, is an example I always point to. Hialeah is um, most Hispanic city in the state. Um, it's where more working class Cuban and other Hispanic immigrant populations end up. Hillary Clinton had won 50% of the vote in Hialeah in 2016. In this last election, Democrats won 22% of the vote in Hialeah. And you could point to Democrats literally just not having physical presence in a place like Hialeah. And what I say is, okay, that seems, yes, that seems bad for Democrats, but it's also an opportunity. It means what happens when you do show up? <laughs> What happens when you do start building um, from the ground up and do what you know um, works? We should also mention the special election that should happen in the 35th State House District in the Orlando area that Ron DeSantis has refused to call. This is a swingy seat held by a Republican. And one way to avoid losing a seat in a special election is to simply never call it. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a lawsuit there as well. So, Carlos. The central issue, I think, without question of the 2022 midterms 
was abortion and the Dobbs decision. And obviously, there were many other issues of great importance. A lot of voters were extremely concerned about the state of our democracy. The economy was also front and center. But abortion really stood out in a particular way, especially in in a way that it really hadn't before. And I'm really curious to know, obviously, mindful of what you were saying at the top of the show about Latino voters not being a monolith, how abortion did play with the various Latino electorates across the country, and especially if it differed in any particularly meaningful way by state? This is a great question. And it was interesting to me how there is a there's a conventional wisdom in certain quarters that Latinos are somehow more socially conservative and maybe might be in a different place when it came to abortion rights than other members of the Democratic coalition. What's interesting to me about that is that it's it's not really been ever substantiated in the data. It is based on a lot of anecdota. It's based on the idea that Latinos are more Catholic. Um, Catholics tend to be more pro-life. I think that kind of ignores the extent to which Latino Catholics actually tend to be one of the more liberal elements of um, of the Catholic Church in the United States. And what we ended up seeing at the end of the day was not a backlash, as I think some people um, suspect that they might have, but rather the Dobbs effect very much took hold among Latino voters and in fact bailed out Democrats among Latino voters in the hotly contested battleground states. I mentioned earlier, what our report looked at was the elements of stability in the hotly contested battleground states. And we looked at three factors. One of them was the issue environment. Now, economic fundamentals should have benefited Republicans. Um, In fact, what we saw in our postmortem poll is the extent to which Republicans were trusted among Latino voters in the battlegrounds to handle inflation and the rising cost of living, but they didn't capitalize on that. Why not? When we looked at people's top issue and how they voted, the economy and cost of living voters did break heavily for Republicans, but they voted at lower rates and they were offset by the Dobbs voters. So voters who said the abortion was their top issue came out at rates above what we would have expected from them and broke heavily for Democrats. And so at the end of the day, the economy voters didn't vote, the Dobbs voters did. And Dobbs, in the context of these midterms, helped Democrats keep those numbers steady and avoid further decline among Latino voters. It's really so interesting. And again, you know, Carlos, it kind of sort of counters a conventional wisdom that exists. And I I ran into this same issue on same-sex marriage, where I was told, uh, you know, Latinos were going to be strong opponents. And um, Gary Segura actually had research that showed some of the strongest supporters of same-sex marriage were Latino Catholics because it was a family issue and they believed in family. And that was the case in my own family, my husband's family, my in-laws are um, Mexican immigrants. So um, this has been a fascinating conversation. And one of the things I think there's a big debate right now, um, based on a lot of the things you've already mentioned, Carlos, about how Democrats can appeal to Latino voters moving forward. And based on the research you've done, what is your advice on that front? And again, knowing that it's going to might be different state to state, but just kind of your overall thoughts. First, I think it's worth saying, Joe, why that matters, right? Like the, the coalition math for Democrats. Because I think we forget the extent to which there are very few places in this country where Democrats win white voters straight up. Mm-hmm. The way the math works is Democrats try to stop the bleeding among white voters and then hope there are enough black and Latino voters and the support levels are high enough, and in some cases, API voters, to make up the difference. It's the only way the math works, right? Um, I think we sometimes forget that. <laughs> I think if you were uh, if, if you were to break it down, at the end of the day, Democrats are successful because they do depend on what is astronomical, hard to sustain levels of support from especially black voters and then secondarily Latino voters. Um, And so, you know, you can kind of end up in a weird 50-50 dynamic where you're saying, okay, well, you're winning Latino voters, that's enough. But actually, there's a very big difference between winning 55 percent of Latino voters and 60 percent of Latino voters. And so the question for Democrats is not just are they winning Latino voters, but are they holding the kind of margins that they need to um, offset losses in other parts of the electorate. And so how do you, how do they do that? How do they do that? And, you know, I, I, I wish there was some very fancy answer. Uh, a lot of this is not, in fact, rocket science. So much of this is understanding, as we showed in our report, that while Republicans have made gains and have increased strength on certain dimensions, you know, on, on the economy, on who voters believe is better for American workers, on who shares Uh, religious values or is going to keep their family safe, you see kind of divided numbers. But at the end of the day, 
the sense that Democrats care more about people like you, the Democrats are better for Hispanics, that Republicans prioritize the rich over working people or people like you, that snapshot of the both parties is very enduring. Um, it's kind of underlies democratic partisanship. And the dial on kind of Latino identity can go up or down, kind of like a volume dial, as you might have you. In 2016, it was kind of at its highest. And so it crowded out other priorities. In 2020, actually, that dial kind of goes down a little bit. And voters are voting on different dimensions, like the economy. And on the economy, you have actually a more um, even sense between um, the both parties, especially coming out of um, coming out of COVID. Um, and so for Democrats, the question is, how do they shore up some of the weakness they may, might have on those economic dimensions? Because that's an anxiety that could become a weakness. We saw in Nevada this last year how Senator Cortez Masso actually did this in live, her and Democratic allies, right? Um, while Republicans decided that they were going to make the campaign to Latino voters all about crime and crime adjacent issues, which, yes, Republicans were more trusted on crime, but that didn't mean it was their top priority, you know, among kind of the target audience for Spanish language communication, it was like 6% of voters said it was their top issue. Republicans hoped to make it more of an issue, but they couldn't. Because what CCM was doing on the other end was undercutting the Republican strength on the economy, was going after Laxalt on gas prices, on drug prices, on the votes Republicans had taken, on Laxalt's ties to those industries, and touting her own plans, right? And so it was taking and understood that Democrats start from a place of strength with Latino voters and just need to kind of sand, shore up some of the weaker spots. Because at the end of the day, all things equal, Democrats do break a little bit more to Democrats, but Democrats have to do the work. Um, Republicans can take advantage when they feel like they're being taken, taken for granted, or when they feel like there are Republicans who better understand where they're coming from, or the uh, troubles and concerns that their families are experiencing. Um, so, so that's the starting place. Carlos, you mentioned something totally fascinating to me just now. You talked about this identity dial for Latinos. Can you say a little bit more about that and specifically what factors you think contribute to the dial turning up versus turning down from election to election? Great question. Um, you know, my friend Kevin Collins, uh, Survey 160, says that the, the biggest challenge for campaigns is to convince voters that your candidate cares about people like them and importantly, to shape who the people like them is. Which identity are you kind of trying to speak to? Which set of priorities are you trying to bring to the fore? And look, voters carry lots of different identities. Latino voters don't flatten themselves down to this one element. Like every other element voter in the, in, in the electorate, they look at different elements. Um, at the end of the day, though, people do ask themselves, who's going to look out for people like me? And whether it's consciously me as Hispanic, it's certainly me, people like my family, people like my community. Um, and when the me is defined as a group um, like Latinos, and it's defined as it was like say in the 2006, 2007 immigration debates, where all of a sudden the dynamic wasn't just about immigrants. It was about a sense that Republicans were hostile to minorities generally, um, to Latinos, um, to people who, um, who, who were not like them. That was a perception of the Republican Party that kind of carried Democrats for about a decade, right? And it come to culminates in 2016 when you have this Trump guy, from the moment he comes down the escalator, people don't know him, people don't trust him, but the snapshot they have of him is, well, this is a guy who seems very much in the vein of other anti-immigrants, other racists who have come um, before him. And so that identity kind of get brought, gets brought to the fore. In 2020, I know we had talked a lot about immigration while Trump was president, but as you get to the end of the election, Trump actually dials that down. Trump understood he had an opportunity among Latino voters, and so he wasn't emphasizing immigration in the same way. Instead, um, the temperature gets brought down on that, and we actually see it in the polling where voters say they're voting more in terms of the economy, in terms of COVID, in terms of concerns that Biden would come down and come in and lock down um, the economy again. Again, not among all Latino voters, among a, a small subset of swing voters, right? As I mentioned, it was about 8% of Latinos um, who swung from uh, the, the Clinton side to the, to the Trump side um, between those two elections. So it's enough to make a meaningful difference. And you could see it in, in what, the campaigns, what the campaigns focus on, right? It's the signals that are going out um, to voters that kind of tell them, which set, what am I voting on? What is this election a referendum on? Ooh, it's fascinating. So we're rolling into another election year. Well, every year is an election year, but um, 2024, right before us. What are some of the key down-ballot races that you're watching that you think uh, Latino voters will be play a significant role in? Great question, because I think a lot of the conversation ends up being just about 
the presidential, and the presidential obviously sets the pace in many ways. But you know, notably, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the decline of ticket splitting, and it's true there's kind of less ticket splitting than there was once upon a time. Um, and yet, <laughs> it, it can still be meaningful, right, for down ballot candidates if you have a few points difference between top of ticket. Um, and uh, a Senate candidate, a congressional candidate, a state ledge candidate, um, uh, especially. And so one thing that's true of all down ballot campaigns is their focus shouldn't be on turnout. Presidential campaigns are where turnout really gets decided. For down ballot campaigns, when it comes to Latino voters, it's all persuasion. It's all a persuasion game. Um, Because even some voters who look like Democrats, who respond like Democrats um, in those polls, can be persuaded on a case-by-case basis to vote for individual Republicans. There's a lot of swing in the Latino vote. It doesn't look like swing in the sense of a pendulum that's constantly going back and forth. It kind of defaults more to Democrats overall, uh, but there's a willingness to support individual Republicans. And so for down-ballot campaigns, that's an opportunity for both parties, Um, certainly a danger for Democrats who take for granted that a voter who's going to come out um, for uh, Joe Biden is going to automatically stick around um, and vote for your uh, Democrat in uh, in a local state legislative campaign. And so that matters meaningfully in, um, especially in places like Arizona and Nevada, where there's big Senate races, where you have meaningful uh, congressional and state ledge races um, as well. But it, it's, it's not just the most Latino dense states. These days, the way districts are drawn, almost by definition, if a state, if a district is more swingy, you are going to have a pocket of Latino or black or API voters there in a meaningful manner. I think this this last battleground uh, map that we had in 2022 was the most Latino um, house map that I've seen um, in a very long time. As far as when you look at um, uh, the the uh, the red to blue and the frontline um, districts, um, I think you're going to see a repeat in that regard uh, when you think of districts in you know. Central Valley of, uh, of California, uh, when you look at the, the Gabe Vasquez seat that was just won in New Mexico to southern um, New Mexico, when you look at key districts um, in, um, in Texas, certainly um, a lot of interestingly like rural Hispanic seats uh, like Colorado 8, which is another uh, defend for Democrats, where you have meaningful Latino populations. In some cases, you have Latino candidates as well. And then you have states that are um, where you have growing Latino populations. Um, that in close elections can be especially meaningful. I think that's true. Pennsylvania is going to get a lot of attention, um, certainly from us um, as we uh, as we study the map this uh, this go around. That's great. Thank you. It just shows again the importance of this Latino electorate and um, and the work you're doing. Uh, I love bringing down this very high level conversation directly to the down ballot because, of course, that is what we are all about. We have been talking with Carlos Odio, the co-founder of Equis Labs. Carlos, where can our listeners find out more about your work and follow what you guys do? Sure. Uh, we uh, we just released our 2022 postmortem, all 135 slides of it. Um, you can get that on our website, uh, equisresearch.us. Equis is E-Q-U-I-S research.us. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Carlos uh, Odio. Some of, my, some of my other colleagues are on there as well. Um, we're on Medium, um, posting a, a bunch of our reports there all the time. Um, and there's there's a lot more to come. Great. Well, we will also include a link to the postmortem in show notes. Carlos, thank you for joining us on The Down Ballot this week. Thanks for having me on. We could do this all day. <laughs> That's all from us this week. Thanks to Carlos Odio for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday, everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can reach out to us by emailing thedownballot at dailycoast.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our producer, Walter Einenkel, and editor, Trevor Jones. We'll be back next week with a new episode. 